Amen. Well, good morning. morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Our love and thanks to Brady and Diana and to Ruthie this morning for leading us in worship. You know, many are unaware of the time that these guys put in to prepare and to rehearse these songs of praise. How many of us know that in a healthy worship ministry, as the musicians are selecting the hymns and the songs, that they are spending time in the upcoming text as well to ensure that even in the songs we sing, that it's cohesive with the text, that it's all woven together to magnify Christ, putting to music and putting to song what the text is about to give us in truth and in application. So we are thankful for their labor unto the Lord to serve his people with skillful song and voice. And our thanks as well to our brother Nathan, for bringing us the word last week. And what a fantastic walk through the genealogy of Esau. I have never heard Genesis 36 preached before, and I may never again. What glorious truth contained in that text. Our thanks to Nathan for faithfulness and preparation, and we will always remember now why it's there. Why the Holy Spirit retained and preserved such a lineage for our instruction and for our edification. Taking home in our back pocket that that singular distilled truth to the question, what does a blessed man look like? It's not success as the world colors or defines it. And in the world, the wicked often seem to prosper. Really, the genealogies of Esau, they they function as our our psalm of Asaph in Psalm 73. How many of you remember that message some months ago? We titled it Spiritual Amnesia. Asaph looked around and he saw the wealth of the wicked. He saw the success and the seeming escape of the ungodly, how trouble never seems to come to them. But as for me, Asaph wrote, you'll recall that my feet had almost stumbled My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease as they increase in riches. This almost made Asaph stumble. And Asaph was the chief musician, wasn't he? Meaning he was mature in the Lord. He was mature. Meaning the the seeming prosperity of the wicked is a real challenge and a heart struggle for believers. And Asaph had forgotten. He had nearly slipped until the truth of God's word was brought to remembrance. It was brought to bear upon his wayward heart. And he declares in that same psalm, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Asaph was telling himself, reminding himself, what is true? Even though my eyes tell me this, what is reality? 
And when Asaph does this, recall what flowed out of that beautiful psalm at the end. It was praise and it was joy. He closes declaring, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It was praise and joy that should be emoted from our spirit when we read such things, even as the generations of Esau. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. While many judgments exist in this world and many consequences, both natural and divine, are meted out, this life is a vapor. Here today and gone tomorrow is to eternity that we look. It is with eternal lenses that we sojourn. So our thanks again to Nathan for reminding us of that wonderful truth last week. Amen? Amen. What is our joy to be rejoining our journey through Mark again this morning? Having taken pause over the last few weeks with the passing of our dear friend and family member, Harvey Willis. We pause to look to the hope and the perspective of God's word for such times. Diving deeply into the riches of 2 Corinthians 4, as we long for the lens of heaven, as we pine for eternal perspective of scripture to be applied to our mourning hearts, being reminded what exactly this eternal weight of glory is that is being worked out in us even as our outer man wastes away. It was a time of hopeful tears for us all, not only in remembering such a wonderful man, a man who finished well, a man who ferociously consumed the reading and preaching of the word right to his homecoming, but being faced with our own mortality it rejuvenates and it recenters us anew to the mighty task of the gospel. Remembering the severity of joy in which we've come together. Being reminded of the weightiness of eternity. We do not play church. We do not trifle or treat lightly the preached word. Men's souls are at stake with eternity in the balance. And God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to accomplish such a task. How odd. So we must be about the Father's business with great passion, with great precision, and great faithfulness. Such is our mandate this morning. So if you'll recall, before our providential pause through Mark, we left off having completed our two-part series titled, To Catch a King. As we are now knee-deep in the show trials of Jesus, which will lead up to his crucifixion, we're reminded that Jesus would experience six total trials, three religious and three secular. Having already completed the three religious trials of Jesus, remember, beginning with Annas, then to Caiaphas, and finally to the full Sanhedrin at the temple, our text brings us to the first secular trial of Jesus. With Jesus having now been hauled off to the Antonio Fortress, also known as the Praetorium. Remember that fortress that's just north of the temple? That's built for the Roman garrisons and they had these big towers that they could look down into the temple. So it was a very short walk for the full Sanhedrin to take Jesus to Pontius Pilate. Seeking the Roman allowance for the murder they harbored in their hearts for Jesus. If a death penalty was to be carried out, it would be the Romans who wielded the sword. In previous messages, we've already looked hard at 
who Pontius Pilate was. We looked at his past, his personality, his ambition, all giving us insight into his actions that would lead his final and cowardly delivery of a death sentence. Now, our last series took us inside the praetorium with the religious crowd clamoring outside, right? Because they were unwilling to actually cross that threshold of a Gentile establishment and defile themselves for Passover. How ironic is that? Only Jesus was brought inside. And so we proceeded to watch really this, this dizzying back and forth, seven or eight rounds to be exact, of Pilate going in and out, in and out, talking to Jesus, talking to the crowds, seeking a loophole, seeking a way out of this Jesus problem that had been put in Pilate's lap. And we really compared this first show trial to well, something of a Broadway theatrical play with Pilate going out, out in front of and, and behind the curtain so many times with the crowd having no idea at all what was happening backstage. But indeed, it is backstage where the real story is taking shape, where the control is actually wielded. And we look to both Luke and John's gospel to really give us a, a fuller sense of the scene and to, well, to really get a better view behind the curtain, as it were. And what we noticed from Luke's account is that none of the accusations brought against Jesus at this time are religious accusations from the religious leadership. They know that if they're going to get an execution, they're going to have to do a lot better than that. They must bring charges to raise the interest of Rome. And they bring three. They bring three. Luke reads, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, First accusation. And forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. There's two. And saying that he himself is Christ a king. There's three. Now interestingly enough, while they bring three false accusations against Jesus, we'll see that it will also be three times throughout that Pilate will declare the innocence of Jesus. Now we didn't have time for a deep dive into John's recording of Jesus' conversation with Pilate backstage, as it were, but we did explore the highlights. Not only in Jesus' answers, where he declares to Pilate that my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would, be delivered over to the, so that I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. But as well, we explored the silence of Jesus and the volumes that were spoken through that silence. So much so that our last text closed with Pilate marveling at Jesus. How do you not defend yourself? All this we explored deeply in that series, To Catch a King. If you missed any of that, it's thanks to our technical team. It's available on Facebook and Sermon Audio. I pray you are richly blessed through it. But today as we continue in our scene with Pilate, by way of reminder, let us set our context and timeline. We've mentioned the three secular trials of Jesus. First to Pilate, then to Herod, then back to Pilate. And Mark doesn't record this interaction with Herod Antipas. But we saw in Mark 15.3 that the chief priests began to accuse him of many things. And what were those many things? Luke 23, 5 tells us, but they kept on insisting, saying he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, 
even as far as this place. Now it's here that Pilate, the political animal, sees a way out. This man's a Galilean. Really? Well, then guess what? He's Herod's problem. He's Herod's problem. And what luck? Because Luke's gospel tells us that Herod was already in Jerusalem for the Passover. Not as a Jew. Herod was, he was an Idumean. But there was the politics of the feast that needed to be tended to. That's why he was there. So Jesus walked even from Pilate to Herod, also a very short distance. All of these scenes that we're seeing are compacted in a very small area. If you ever visit Jerusalem, you'll be shocked how very small and close this proximity is. Now again, Mark does not record this interaction with Herod, the second trial. And we briefly touched on it last message, but this occurs between Mark 15.5, where we left off last time, and Mark 15.6, where we pick up today, okay? That this interaction with Herod Antipas, he was a regional monarch who had been, he'd been given rule over Perea in Galilee. That's where it took place, the second secular trial of Jesus. Now, it's quite easy to get the, the Herods a bit jumbled up, but this is not to be confused with Herod the Great, right? That was the Herod who sought to kill the Christ child. He was the one who built the temple in Jerusalem. Herod the Great had a number of sons, and when he died, his territory was divided up amongst them. There were four of them. One of them was Herod Antipas. That's the Herod in our text. He was a debauched man. This was, this was the Herod who had taken the wife of his half-brother. You might remember a certain man by the name of John the Baptist called him out on that, cost him his life. Of course, it was Antipas's wife who was the driver of this. The scripture says that Herod actually liked to hear John the Baptist speak really from a standpoint of curiosity, but he was, he was fascinating. I'm sure John the Baptist was quite the sight to behold and to hear. Jesus said he was the greatest man to ever live. And yet Herod presided over his death. Even though Herod didn't want to, Herod wanted nothing to do with the death of John the Baptist. Yet he was urged on by loud voices. In light of Pilate now, how familiar does that sound? Today, as we delve further into our text, we're going to return to Pilate. Jesus, having been returned by Herod, even after Herod and his soldiers mocked Jesus, even after putting a kingly robe on Jesus, they found once again no guilt in him. Herod has returned this harmless king to Pilate, mocked and abused, now dressed as royalty. This robe that they put on Jesus by Herod was different than the purple one that they would put on later with Pilate. This would have been a shimmering white robe, often worn by Jewish kings, and it would have had silver strands woven all throughout it that would glisten in the morning sun as Jesus would have been escorted back to Pilate. We now begin what comprises the third, the last and the final secular trial of Jesus that will culminate in a sentence of death. We have incredible territory to cover this morning, more verses than we've covered at once in quite a while. So with that review behind us, let us dive in and look at our text. Mark 15, 6 through 12. Mark 15, 6 through 12. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? 
for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I have? Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we take steps closer to Calvary, Lord, we feel weight in our feet. Lord, as the steps get harder. But Lord, as we make our way through this text, we ask that you would be with us. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would remove the dross, the chaff, Lord, the things that would distract us from hearing your word. Lord, as we look to the greatest question ever asked. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would meet every need, that the arrow would find its mark with great precision this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, our regulars at Harrison Hills know that we love our original languages. We love our Hebrew and our Greek, not to be fancy pants intellectuals, but to remove the veil of English that we might kiss the bride directly. Nothing standing between us and God's intent. Indeed, how often do we find the English failing us or failing to capture the nuance of the author's intent? Well, it's often. There's a reason, beloved, that Scripture was not written in English. However, it's not the Greek or the Hebrew that drives our exposition this morning. But surprisingly, it is the Latin that draws our gaze. There's a principle in reading and understanding our Bibles called sensus plenier. Very simply translated, this means fuller sense or deeper meaning. Raymond Brown in his work defines census plenier as, quote, that additional, deeper meaning intended by God, but not clearly intended by the human author or human person, which is seen to exist in the words of a biblical text or group of texts or even whole book when they are studied in light of further revelation or development in understanding of that revelation, close quote. So a great example of census plenier might be Isaiah. When he wrote, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. 700 years before Jesus came. Now Isaiah had an understanding of what he was writing to the extent able, but he wrote greater than he knew. He spoke greater than he knew. But now, as Brown put it, we may study that passage in light of further revelation or development in our understanding of that revelation. In other words, the New Testament, right? We have a fuller and a deeper meaning to what Isaiah wrote, don't we? We see examples of this all over Scripture. Census plenier is active in many different places. 
And indeed, it is this morning. It is a fuller sense. It is someone speaking greater than they know that drives the thrust of our text today. So to that end, in order to start at the beginning, verse 6, we must first look to the end. To a question posed by an unbeliever. One who had no idea what it was they were truly asking. No idea that they had just asked the most consequential question of all time. That they had just posed the very question whose answer will determine the fate of every man, woman, and child. One question. The only question. And we see Pilate pose that question. Speaking census plenier, far greater than he knew. And Pilate will declare at the end of our text today in verse 12, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Or as Matthew's account puts it, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Pilate has slipped, schemed, and stumbled into the only question that every person must answer. Pilate has spoken census plenier, greater than he knew. Does that not even harken back to Caiaphas in John 11? Remember the wicked high priest where he unwittingly declared, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. You don't say, Caiaphas. You don't say. He spoke greater than he knew. Census plenier. If Caiaphas only knew what he had just declared here. If Pilate had only known what he had just declared. The only question that ultimately matters. It's why we're here this morning. It's why this text was written and preserved. What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Yes, we're going to see the introduction of a man named Barabbas here. And that will be fascinating to study. But why is even Barabbas there? It's to point us and lead us to the only question. Without Barabbas to, to trade, Pilate would never ask, what shall I do with Jesus? So we're going to keep our eye on that prize. We're going to keep our eye on the one and only question as we make our way through the text. So look with me this morning at long last to our first verse. Verse 6, verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. Now this was a long-standing tradition at Passover. It was a way to, to demonstrate the mercy of Rome and to curry favor with the local population. But this was particularly important for someone like Pilate. Because we don't have all the time to, to go into all the history behind this. There is a lot. But needless to say, Pilate was not on good terms with the locals. He was on something of thin ice with, the sea, with Caesar as well. They had a long history behind them. And the Sanhedrin knew. They knew that they had Pilate over a barrel. So when we see the crowd threaten Pilate in John 19, when they said, if you release this man... You're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Pilate knew. He knew exactly what they were saying. Now because of Pilate's previous errors, we'll call them, he was a man subject to extreme blackmail. And that's exactly what they did. However, at this point, Pilate sees a potential way out. 
He knows Jesus is innocent. He knows Jesus is no threat to Rome. Jesus has told him his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. He's not here trying to take over the government and the media and the military and the businesses. His kingdom is not of this world. There are no soldiers behind him. And the legions of angels that he could call down at any moment, he doesn't. He doesn't. Pilate knows this is an innocent man. Three times he said so. But now he might have an out. Through this customary prisoner release, I can free Jesus, I can curry favor with the people, justice will be upheld, and my political hide will stay intact. It's perfect. And guess what? I've only got two prisoners on the death docket. One's this Jesus fellow, and the other's a violent criminal. One that the crowd had just gathered by the thousands, waving palm branches for. The other is a tried and convicted murderer and thief. And the plan seems smart. It seems smart. Oh, but for the fallen heart of man and the perfect plan of God. And both we will see are brought to bear. Look with me to verse 7. Verse 7. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder, in the insurrection there was a man called Barabbas. Looks like we missed a part there. <laughs> now it may sound odd that Pilate only had two to offer and choose from. There were other rebels, as our text says here, but only one who faced the same, the same outcome of charge, meaning that of death. Now still one would figure that there would be mounds of prisoners, right, to offer for release, but the wheels of justice in, in Roman times did not turn like the wheels of justice today. You don't sit on death row for 20 years making appeals. <laughs> Under Roman jurisdiction, you would be executed within days of your crime. In fact, it's very likely that the cross given to Jesus in only a few short hours from now was likely meant and prepared for Barabbas. His execution was set. So this was not some distant insurrection long in the past for Barabbas. This would have just happened. And no doubt the religious leaders are they're playing on that very fear. Accused Jesus of wanting to topple Rome as they had just gotten done finished mopping up an insurrection. And what makes this opportunity between Jesus and Barabbas so unique is that both are so well known. Whatever it was, Barabbas did made quite a splash. There, there was no introduction needed. He was infamous. And that will work perfectly. Now for those who have been keeping a running clock in their minds of, of Jesus' movements all the way from the garden, can you remember back that far? To Annas, to Caiaphas, to the temple, to Pilate, to Herod, now back to Pilate, they would know that we're starting to round about 6 to 6.30 a.m. That means it's no longer just the 71 members of the Sanhedrin gathered at the first show of light, right? To give this proceeding a, a veneer of legitimacy. That means that the now hemorrhaging city of Jerusalem, right? Over three million during Passover, it swelled to, was now starting to wake up. Six to 6.30 in the morning, word is traveling fast, and this is now becoming a public spectacle here at the Praetorium. This was open to the public by law. So if you can visualize it, Pilate, he would have stood up, or he really would have been seating. They called it the judgment seat. He would have been seated 
up above them, on a platform above them, and the crowd would gather underneath. That's exactly what's happening. And that's great news for Pilate. That's great news. Look quickly to verse 8. Watch the scene grow. Verse 8. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. Key that we see the crowd mentioned here. They're starting to gather. The sun is up. And Pilate thinks that he can overwhelm the Sanhedrin with the pulsating roar of the crowd. Surely, surely they're going to choose the one that they love over a violent murderer. Pilate knew all about the, what we know as the triumphal entry a few days prior. Nothing like that would happen outside of Pilate's knowledge. Can he now use the crowd to ensure justice for Jesus and keep his own job, even his own life? Because another riot, and Pilate is going to be in big trouble with Rome. So with the crowd now gathering, likely far, far outnumbering the Sanhedrin by this point, Pilate puts his plan into motion. Look with me to verses 9 and 10. I'll read them as one. 9 and 10. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Well, buried in this are treasures of heart motives, aren't there? Understand that by referring to Jesus as the king of the Jews, Pilate is needling the religious leaders right in the eye. He's jabbing them. This is what we might call today a zinger, okay? This was, this was a proverbial backhand showing the disdain that Pilate had for the Sanhedrin and for this entire proceeding. And we're not guessing here there. Recall John's account of this. He writes, quote, The chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews. But that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. This was a title made to stick in their craw. And Pilate made sure that it made it all the way to the sign above Jesus' head on the cross. That wasn't meant by Pilate to mock Jesus. It was meant to mock the religious leaders. It's a common misunderstanding that that sign was there to mock Jesus. It wasn't. It was to mock the Sanhedrin. What the religious leaders did this fateful morning, our text says, they did out of envy. Envy. What a word to camp on. We're lucky we got past, we'll get past this word today. As always, as we say here, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. What does envy mean? The Holy Spirit could have chosen any number of descriptives for their motivation, but he chose envy, meaning jealousy, desiring what another has. Why? He could have picked a hundred other nouns to describe their motives. Envy. It's really quite explosive. Consider this for a moment. In order to be envious of someone, you have to know what they possess in order to envy it. You have to know what they can do. You have to know what they're capable of. From the birth of Jesus' Galilean ministry, you'll recall, they had local Pharisees that were tasked with following and monitoring Jesus, reporting back to the mothership in Jerusalem. 
And you'll recall that Jesus even performed what were known as the Messianic miracles. Miracles that by their own writing could only be performed by Messiah. Jesus went out of his way to perform those on open display. They knew. But you're stealing the affection of our sheep. And you're doing and saying all the things that we can't. Truth be known, we want to be treated as God. We want to be given worship and honor in the marketplace wherever we go. The worship that we see being lavished upon Jesus, we want it and we hate you for it. That is the ugly heart that would rather have a murderer released to them than to have and face their religious hypocrisy and failings. That they are not the authority but are to be men under authority. As the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd, people are listening and they're following. So he must be stopped. Beloved envy, which drove them, is poison of the heart. Why? Because envy tells God that he's not God. Someone else has something that should have been given to me. God is either messed up in not giving it to me, making him impotent, or he doesn't know what's best for me, meaning he's not omniscient. Perhaps he doesn't even know about it, or he doesn't see it, meaning he's not omnipotent. Go down the line, and envy of the heart flies in the face of every single attribute of God. And now as a result, Proverbs 14.30 says, envy makes the bones rot. The Sanhedrin were whitewashed tombs, full of dead men's bones. Yet without the envy of the religious elite, we would not have the only question we're driving for. Without Barabbas, we would not be confronted, census plenier, with the greatest question every man, woman, and child will face. What shall I do with Christ? Now here, something amazing happens in our text, but you really have to dig to find it. The sovereign hand of God in, well, in both Scripture and in our personal lives. I think we can all attest to this. Sometimes it's a, a massive pillar of fire for all to see. And sometimes, other times, it's as subtle and as soft as a landing butterfly. But as we read this telling, as we watch the transpiration of the very event, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the event that all redemptive history has been arcing toward, that every groan of creation has been pointing toward, we should be looking closely for the hand of God in these proceedings, shouldn't we? Between verses 10 and 11, something happens. Mark doesn't record it, but Matthew's account does. And it gives us the timeline perfectly to watch the hand of God land as a butterfly behind the scenes. So first our text, verse 11. Let's see what happens. What happens? Verse 11. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Now this is fascinating, but it, it raises a load of questions. But two important ones that we must explore if we want to see the hand of God moving here. First, how did they do it? How did they do it? 
How do 71 religious leaders persuade a crowd between 1,000 and 1,500 to do this? And secondly, they say to persuade the crowd. How do they do that? What did they do? What did they say? Meaning, how do they have the opportunity to do it? And what did they say when they had the opportunity? Both must be answered if we're to capture this scene to its fullest. So first, how? Something happens in this scene. Now, there's no need to turn there, but let me quickly read your Matthew's account of this scene. Close in and watch this. Matthew 27, beginning at verse 18. Watch this. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Okay, we got that. Same as Mark. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Did we see what just happened there? Pilate was pulled away. He was distracted by the report from his wife. So that detaches Pilate from the scene, if even for a few minutes. Now what's happening down below while Pilate's listening to this? The Sanhedrin flies into action. This is our chance. They're, going, they're not going to do this right in front of Pilate. One theologian called the dream of Pilate's wife and her report nothing short of divine intervention to fulfill God's purposes. Without this stirring up, the crowd might have stuck with their instincts. Release Jesus. We like him. But nothing will thwart the plan of God. Even if it be aided by a frightful dream, God's will and purpose will be accomplished. So what heart... What encouragement might the Christian take from that reminder this morning? So very well then. So Pilate's wife brings a distraction. Pilate turns away, perhaps even walks away momentarily. And the religious leaders pounce on the opportunity. They've only a very short window of opportunity. So what do they say? Have you ever thought about that? What did these religious leaders say to stir up the crowd? How do you get a crowd that supposedly loves Jesus to flip on a dime and ask for a murderer instead? Any ideas? You've only got a minute. You've got a strike for the heart. What do they say? You have one moment in time to spread a message, a single bullet point. What was it? Have you ever pondered what they said to get a friendly crowd to turn their backs on Jesus and ask for a murderer instead? Wouldn't that be a cliffhanger to get to here next week? I won't do that to you. Well, we have to first acknowledge that Scripture doesn't tell us directly. Ah, but it does. It does. If we take in the totality of what we know, we can make a very educated guess what 71 learned men blitzkrieg this crowd with. Jesus arrived into Jerusalem riding on a donkey on Monday. Sorry, I know we call it Palm Sunday. This was, it actually happened on a Monday, sorry. With the crowds waving their palms, crying what? Our longtime HHBCers will remember this teaching. This was about a year back ago. What did they yell? Hoshiana. Hoshiana. Today we affiliate that word with Hosanna. Now that's a word of praise but that's not what it meant to them at all. 
The smiling, waving palms that we often envision, beloved, that's Hollywood. That's all Hollywood. Hoshiana means save us. It's the cry of someone who is drowning and crying out for a life preserver to be thrown to them. Save us, save us, deliver us. That is the cry of the triumphal entry. Save them from what? From the Romans. From their tyrannical occupiers. What is the expectation of the Jewish people for Messiah? He was a military Messiah. He was a conquering Messiah. He was to come and throw off the shackles of Rome and restore Israel to freedom and reign over her as king. Even the disciples believed this. They had that so ingrained into them from their youth, Jesus had to constantly deprogram them throughout his ministry, saying, no, that's not why I've come. That's not why I've come. No, no, no. So what has happened? Jesus has rode into Jerusalem with great fanfare, Hoshiana, save us, save us. Does that mean save us from our sins? Does that mean give us a new heart? Does that mean save us from death and hell? No, it means save us from our occupiers. Well, it's been four days now. This was Passover. The time is now for us to rise up and crush Rome. Grab hold here, beloved. Grab hold of this. Not only has Jesus not done that, but the very one who represents the head of the snake to the Jews, the Roman head, Pontius Pilate, says this man is no danger. The enemy, Rome, Pilate and Herod have openly said that they find no harm, no guilt in the one that you think is the Messiah. The wheel's starting to turn yet? Pilate isn't the only one scheming and thinking quick on his feet here. So are the chief priests. So what did they say? How do you go from palm branches, Hoshiana, to give us Barabbas? 71 min learned men have one minute, probably less, to stir up this crowd while Pilate is distracted with his wife and her dream. Now if each one of those 71 gather about 15 to 20 that are within the sound of their voice that can hear them, that would cover between 1,000 and 1,400 people just like that. And that's probably pretty accurate in size. Gather around quickly. Listen, you've heard Pilate from his own mouth that Jesus is no threat. No Jewish Messiah is a friend of Rome. He's to overthrow Rome, not be called blameless by Rome, don't take our word for it. You've heard it from the snake himself. This cannot be the Messiah. You want an insurrection? You want to overthrow Rome? Then give us the insurrectionist. Ask for Barabbas. Boom. Done. There's a 20-second apologetic, fast and easy, to a crowd who's looking for a military Messiah. Would the man they're looking for be found blameless by the enemy? Would he? Would the Jewish Messiah be declared innocent and harmless by their oppressors? No way. Polar opposite. That's not at all how they understood Messiah to be. That just needed to be pointed out to them. That's it. What you are looking for is an insurrection. Give us Barabbas. 
even as a murderer and a criminal, Barabbas was closer to their vision of a Messiah than the God-man who stood before them. Give us Barabbas. In the ultimate irony, it was Pilate's defense of Jesus that was all the ammunition the chief priests needed. <laughs> you think this man's the Messiah? A man that Rome thinks is no threat? Our conquering military Messiah is the ultimate threat. Jesus cannot be the one we've looked for. Give us Barabbas. In response to such irrationality, in light of scheming and sin, Pilate's own heart deluded to who Christ is, the only question is raised. What it's all pointing toward. Verse 12. Verse 12. And Pilate again said to them, What shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? What shall I do with this man called Christ? Did not all of heaven quake in response? This spoken from a pagan man. Yes, yes. That is the question, O world. If there is a question that is to hang over humanity like a perpetual cloud and a mist, it must be this. What shall I do with this man called Christ? It stands immovable as the question of the ages. Beloved, we could sit for a thousand lifetimes and not arrive at a question of more consequence. I love the sound of crying babies. It's the sound of God keeping his promises to the church. Beloved, it's the only question that demands an answer for all who hear it. Paul tells the Romans that the law has shut the mouth of every man so that the world may become accountable to God. The law has stopped our mouth as we behold our guilt, as we behold a sin-stained life in light of perfection. It means we put our hand over our mouth so we cannot speak. But beloved, every mouth will speak one last time. Paul tells the Philippians that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should and will confess. They will speak. Their mouths will be opened. And all will be able to say one thing. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee of those in heaven, meaning every angel, every believer who's gone home to Christ, of those on the earth, meaning those who are both redeemed and unredeemed, saved and unsaved, and all those under the earth. Every devil, every demon, every fallen angel, every fallen person, every unredeemed person being held for final judgment, all mouths were stopped by the law, but every mouth will speak one final time. Either willingly in joy, toward Christ their Savior, or unwillingly, forced to their knees, their mouth will open, and they will answer the only question that ever mattered. What have I done with this man called Christ? 
he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every mouth ever made of man and of angel, fallen or redeemed, lost or saved, will declare the truth. The declaration to the only question will be answered by all. Beloved, the opportunity this morning is to answer this question with a willing heart on this side of eternity, bowing our knee to this man called Christ, kneeling in repentance and faith, thereby seeing his kind face, seeing the one who is gentle and lowly. He'll turn none away who come in humility. Beloved, the gospel message is either everything or it's nothing. The only question is ringing through eternity, given by a pagan man, Pontius Pilate. What do I do with this Christ? And the answer, beloved, is everything. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text today. Lord, as you've allowed us to see the surface of it, you've allowed us to see the middle, you've allowed us to dig and see what lies underneath. Lord, you've driven us to the only question. What have we done with you? Lord, have we treasured you in our heart as esteemed and high and lifted up as not only our Savior, but as our Lord who commands us that we live as slaves unto? Well, Lord, have we rejected that? Heavenly Father, we ask as this word takes hold, as it sits like seeds in our heart. Lord, we ask that it might not be stolen by the fowler. We ask that it might fall upon good soil this morning. Lord, that it would bring forth fruit. Lord, that a mighty oak would be birthed from so simple a truth. What have we done with Christ? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this. We ask that you would keep each one of the dearly beloved until we can meet again in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.